From the beginning, the church's faith in the one God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit has been a challenge to human understanding. On the Mass of each Lord's Day, we profess our belief in one God, the Father Almighty, in Jesus Christ, true God, from true God, and in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, that is, true God. We do not simply believe that these three hypostases or persons, as they have been designated since the fourth century, have one and the same essence. That is true as far as it goes, but it does not go far enough. Father, Son, and Spirit have one and the same essence in an utterly distinctive way, such that each of them just is the one God, and the three together also just are the one God. Each of them is no less the one God than all three together. And all three are no more the one God than each of them what is when considered alone, whether considered individually or collectively. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are identical with the one God. Yet, the three are irreducibly distinct from one another. The Son is not the Father, and the Holy Spirit is not the Father or the Son. The three are, nonetheless, the one God. Reason, including the reason of Christians, strains to see the intelligibility in this. There have certainly been theologians and philosophers in the Christian tradition who thought, with varying degrees of confidence, that the Trinity could be known by natural reason. Not only the existence of God, but the distinction of persons in God can, these thinkers held, be rationally demonstrated or is rationally necessary given certain other convictions we have about God. For example, that God is love. Much more the common view, however, has been that the truth of Christian teaching on the trinity of persons in God is simply beyond the reach of human nature and human reason in its present state and can be known the Trinity can be known only because God has generously chosen to teach us this truth about himself, to open up to us the most intimate interior truth of his own divine life. Catholic theologians in particular have generally held that the Trinity is a strictly supernatural mystery whose actuality or reality is accessible to faith alone. Accepting that the Trinity is a wholly supernatural mystery means, on the one hand, that we should expect embodied reason, the reason we currently possess, to encounter its own limits as it seeks to see the intelligibility of this primal truth about God. Just because the distinction of persons in God escapes our natural powers of apprehension, because it can be known only by faith, it inevitably poses great difficulties to our powers of comprehension, that is, to our powers of understanding. On the other hand, 
just because God has here proposed to us not simply a surface truth about himself, as it were, such that, as that he is the first mover, but the deepest truth about himself, because of this, we have a correspondingly deep longing to understand what he has given us to believe about himself. This last is our concern here for the next hour, how we can understand the distinction of persons who are the one God, and in particular, how we can understand this in a way that conforms to the Apostle Paul's teaching on the kenosis of the Son, that one of the divine persons emptied himself, becoming man for us men and for our salvation. If we seek an understanding of the church's faith in the Trinity, perhaps the most basic question we have to answer is the one with which we began. How can the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit be identical with the one God? How can they just be the one God if they are not identical with each other? Or put the other way around, if the three persons are irreducibly distinct from each other, as the faith insists, how can they be one God and not three gods? The problem is intuitively felt even when it is not explicitly stated. And Trinitarian theology from an early point is at least implicitly concerned to offer a satisfying solution or answer to it, a genuine, even if limited, advance in comprehension. Among the achievements of medieval scholasticism was to have articulated the nature of the problem with new clarity and force, thanks in part to the assimilation of the full corpus of Aristotle's logical writings, in particular his teaching on identity and difference. If we are to speak and think about identity and difference without lapsing into contradiction, there are certain basic rules we need to follow, even if we are not explicitly aware of them or we're not thinking about them while we're following them. One of these rules is the transitivity of identity. This sounds abstract, but in fact, it's something we all do all the time as we think and talk. Roughly put, if two things are identical with a third thing, then the first two things are identical with each other. More precisely put, if A is identical with B and B is identical with C, then A is identical with C. Thus the label transitivity of identity for this rule. Identity carries over from A to C by way of B. So to give a homely example, suppose we describe some individual as the 34th president of the United States. Suppose further that we describe some individual as the supreme commander of the Normandy invasion of June 1944. We may think, and it is in principle quite possible, that these are two different individuals. We come to learn, however, that the 34th president of the United States is Dwight Eisenhower. We further learn that Dwight Eisenhower was the supreme commander of the Normandy invasion. We are compelled therefore, to recognize that the supreme commander of the Normandy invasion and the 34th president of the United States are not two different individuals, but one and the same individual, namely Dwight Eisenhower. 
the supreme commander of the Normandy invasion and the 34th president of the United States are in reality identical. These two different ways of correctly describing one and the same individual, these are two different ways of correctly describing one and the same individual, not ways of describing two different or distinct individuals. The application of the transitivity of identity to the theology of the Trinity is straightforward and so is the problem it raises. We know, for example, that it is true to say the Son is the one God. Christian faith requires this. We know also that it is true to say the one God is the Father. I believe in one God, the Father. Christian faith requires this as well. From these two true statements, it follows by the law of identity that I just mentioned, the transitivity of identity, it follows that the Son is the Father. We know, however, that the Son is the Father is false. Christian faith requires us to deny this. If we are to make some advance in comprehension, in understanding what we believe, we have to untie this knot, or at least attempt to do so. We need to find a way of blocking the apparent contradiction involved in saying that Father, Son, and Spirit are identical with the one God, but different or distinct from each other. Or to put the issue in a more positive light, we have to find a way of distinguishing the persons from one another that does not require us to deny that they are identical with the one God. Writing a generation after St. Thomas, but expressing a commitment he certainly shares with St. Thomas, John Duns Scotus puts the point I have been making about the logic of identity in a stringently concise way. Quote, whatever things are simply the same as that which is simply one and the same thing are entirely the same as each other, end quote. This logical rule, the rule that this states can be traced back to Aristotle's treatise De Sophisticis Elenchis on fallacious arguments. This principle does more than enshrine an intuitively obvious truth about identity and difference, important as that is. As Scotus notes, and as medieval philosophers and theologians would all have agreed, the validity of all syllogistic reasoning including all the reasoning we do in ordinary day-to-day -day life, depends on the truths of this principle. To give up this principle of identity, if we could, would be to give up on logic as such, and thus on the validity of elementary inferences upon which both daily life and scientific, including theological knowledge, depend, even if we never reflect on what we're doing. On account of this principle, Scotus observes, quote, Every form of syllogism that unites extremes in one and the same middle term holds true. Demolish this principle, and every syllogistic form is destroyed, and thereby all demonstration and knowledge." End quote. My earlier example helps to make this clear. The following inference is valid. The 34th president of the United States was Dwight Eisenhower. Dwight Eisenhower was the supreme commander of the Normandy invasion. Therefore, the 34th president of the United States was supreme commander of the Normandy invasion. 
Identity or sameness of the middle term in both premises guarantees validity of inference, or more precisely, it is one of its guarantees, one necessary condition. Difference in the middle term, equivocation of one sort or another guarantees invalidity. Our thinking about the Trinity as about anything else will have to find a way to follow the most basic laws of thought. Otherwise, it will not be thought at all, but mere verbiage, the covering of a mental hiatus with verbal plaster in a nicely turned phrase of the English philosopher Austin Ferrer. Recently, I was talking with a colleague about the Trinity, and we came upon just these issues. With some exasperation, she said to me, we're doing theology here, not mathematics. Well, yes, but medieval scholastic theologians uniformly insisted, and rightly, I think, that it won't do to say that we're talking about God here. We're doing theology, not mathematics. So as a result of that, the laws of thought don't apply, or they can be modified more or less at will, so our conclusions come out the way we want them to. If theology is human thought, it needs to follow the elementary laws of thought. We need the laws of thought for our talk of God, as with our talk of anything else, to make even minimal sense, first of all, to ourselves. Indeed, we need the laws of thought to tell us when we're talking about God in the first place and not about something else. When we say God in one sentence and God in the next, as when we say Eisenhower in one sentence and Eisenhower in the next, we need to follow the laws of thought in order to succeed in thinking and talking about one and the same thing in both sentences and not two different things. When we say, for example, God is the Father and then say God is the Son, is the Son, we're only talking about one and the same God if the terms the Father and the Son is used in these sentences refer to the same thing, that is, identically the same God. They certainly do, so the creed teaches us, but at the same time they do not. They refer to two different things, to two distinct divine persons, thus the difficulty with which we are trying to cope. It is still possible to hold in the face of these considerations that the logic of identity and other basic laws of thought don't apply to God or don't work when we're talking about God. You can say that, or we can say that, but if we're in earnest about doing it, we have to admit that so far as we can tell, what the Christian faith teaches about the triune God is logically impossible. It is unthinkable to us. As far as we can tell, what the Christian faith teaches cannot be. We can claim, if we like, that things are in fact otherwise than we can understand, that we cannot understand what we cannot understand to be actually is. We can claim that. But if we do that, if we claim that when we finally see God face to face, what is senseless and impossible to us now will finally come to make sense, and be shown to us to be not only possible but real, if we do that, what we cannot do is take that position, the laws of thought don't hold when we talk about God, and then try to pull back the eschatological veil and claim to discourse sensibly about the Trinity anyway. 
That's our view, that the laws of thought don't apply here, that since we're not doing mathematics, we're not applying these laws. If that's our view, we should simply t stop talking about the Trinity at all. The laws of thought may not apply to God, but they certainly apply to us. Medieval scholastic theologians for whom logic was the basis of all philosophical formation take these principles for granted. The logic of identity, that is, and the drastic consequences of giving up on it when we think and talk about the Trinity. So far as I can tell, Thomas Aquinas, John Duns Scotus, and William of Ockham, among others, are in complete agreement on this score, though they certainly differ on what a coherent Trinitarian theology working with these agreed principles will end up looking like. There's a great deal that scholastic theologians set out to do when they undertake to give an account of the church's faith in the Trinity, an account that is both complete and coherent. But no task is more basic than showing that what Christians believe about the triune God is not impossible, that it does not violate elementary laws of thought and so end up in hopeless contradiction especially in contradiction, cleverly concealed by verbal plaster. Scholastic theologians were, in other words, committed to the proposition that the laws of thought apply to our talk of God, difficult though that may be, and we have to try to reach some comprehension of what we say about God and believe about God in a fashion that honors the fundamental laws of thought. As was long recognized in Trinitarian theology, among the basic implications of attending to the logic of identity is this. Among the persons of the Trinity, the minimum possible distinctions must obtain. What most basically distinguishes Father, Son, and Spirit from each other? however we understand it, must be the smallest or the least possible difference that is compatible with real or numerical distinction among the three which the faith requires. Only the most minimal distinction gives us any hope of a coherent Trinitarian theology, one that does not violate the laws of identity and at the same time succeeds in offering some understanding of our basic belief that these three distinct persons are one God. To put the same point in a positive way, the unity among the divine persons must be the greatest possible unity among entities really, which is to say numerically, distinct from one another. Their unity must be greater indeed infinitely greater than that of any created entities, whatever they are, that are truly or numerically distinct. The divine persons are not identical with each other. If they were, we would not have a trinity. But they are, we could say, as close to being identical with one another as really distinct entities can be. In creation, there is no greater unity among things numerically distinct than between the divine and human natures in the person of Christ, a hypostatic union, a union of two distinct natures in one subject or person. Yet the union among the divine persons, numerically distinct 
though they are, is immeasurably greater than this. Quoting St. Thomas, human nature is not in the Son of God more than the Son of God is in the Father, but much less. Our options for understanding how Father, Son, and Spirit can be distinct divine persons are, as a result, sharply limited. In general, it is not difficult to distinguish two entities from one another. In general, we simply have to identify correctly at least one property or characteristic not shared by the two, the property one has and the other doesn't. If we can identify correctly a characteristic that is unique to an entity, or in scholastic terminology, a characteristic genuinely proper to it, then we will have done more. We will have succeeded in distinguishing that individual or person from every actual or possible entity, created or uncreated. When we distinguish entities, however, by assigning them properties that are not shared with others, we also group them into kinds. We classify them. We distinguish them, that is, as individuals of a species or species of a genus. This is just what we cannot do with the divine persons. If we distinguish them in a way that makes them individuals of a species or genus, three instantiations of divinity, then we make them three gods, and our Trinitarian theology has failed at its most basic task. As St. Thomas insists, not alone in this, God is not in a genus. And this entails that the divine essence cannot be a class or kind. Properly speaking, the divine essence has no instances, no individuals that exemplify it as Peter, James, and John exemplify the class or kind human being. Whatever is true of the divine essence, whatever we rightly say of it, will have to be really identical with it. Thus, when we apply the collective term Trinity to God, St. Thomas observes, we rightly designate a plurality of irreducible individuals or supposites, three of them to be precise, but the three are not collected in the way any created entities are. They are instead identical with what collects them. Quoting St. Thomas, this term Trinity belongs among collective terms, but it differs because in the divine Trinity there is not only a unity of order, one person being from another, for example, but with this also a unity of essence. In just this sense, the greatest possible unity is in God. Clearly then, not just any sort of distinction will do when it comes to the divine persons. In fact, none of the ways we ordinarily distinguish created things, classifying them as individuals of a kind, will do. Adequately distinguishing things from one another may not be difficult in general, but it is in the case of the divine trinity. We have to find at least one feature of each person that distinguishes him from the other two 
and at the same time maintains his identity with the divine essence and the one God. Not just any feature or characteristic we might want to ascribe to the divine persons will succeed in doing this, or will even be compatible with the unity of the three as the one God. Not every distinction we might make among the divine persons will be small enough, minimal enough, to preserve their real identity with the divine essence. In our thinking about the Trinity, then, we need to find a way of honoring the logic of identity without surreptitiously making the Trinity into something along the lines of a collective, such as we know in the created world, three individuals of a natural kind, three individuals of divinity with potentially many distinguishing properties. In the middle of the 13th century, as Trinitarian theology developed in the West, there was agreement among scholastic theologians about the nature of the problem and about the basic conceptual resources available for solving it. The conceptual resources were above all two, the notion of procession and that of relation. If the one divine essence is to be possessed by more than one divine person, as the faith requires, there must be procession in God, or as it was also put, origination or production in God. If a second person, in other words, is to possess the very divine essence, that person must come forth or originate from one who already possesses it, as the Son comes forth from the Father and the Holy Spirit from the Father and the Son. In language that goes back at least as far as Richard of St. Victor, if there is to be a trinity, the divine essence must be communicable from one person to another. And the communication of the divine essence is the procession or origination of that person, whether of the Son or of the Holy Spirit. Inseparable from the idea of procession or origination, though not identical with it, is the idea of relation. Where there is origination, relations necessarily arise of the originated to the originator and conversely. To note the most conceptually perspicuous case, when the father eternally generates or brings forth the son, the father necessarily has the relation of paternity to the son and the son the relation of paternity to the Father. On these principles, again, scholastic theologians were all agreed. To be sure, they definitely did not agree on how to employ these basic conceptual resources in a way that produced a coherent Trinitarian theology. About this, there was vehement and ongoing debate concerning, for example, whether the relations themselves distinguish and it was, as it was put, constitute the divine persons at the most basic level, or disparate modes of origination do this, for example, the origination of the Son or Word by way of the divine intellect, the Holy Spirit, or love by way of the divine will, or whether perhaps incommunicable relational properties do this, but not the relations as such. These debates, which I can't go into here, we're closely tied to our main concern, which is how to save the logic of identity in thinking about the Trinity. Medieval scholastic theologians across the board sought an account of the distinction 
and constitution of the, of the three divine persons that allows us some grasp of the three as numerically and so really distinct from one another, but not from the divine essence and the one God. Such an account, they all thought, will have to find in the processions of the divine persons and their relations among them a sufficient basis for distinction of persons in God without sacrificing identity of essence. We can build on this basis, scholastic theologians held, but we have to be careful not to undermine it. Whether or not deliberately we undermine it by introducing distinctions in God that are not plausibly tied to origin and to the relations attendant upon origin. How to construct an understanding of the divine persons that succeeds or best succeeds or is least inadequate for this demanding task was disputed, but not the nature of the task itself. There's much to be said regarding this, which is of great importance for Trinitarian theology, but for present purposes, I want to draw attention not to the many differences among medieval scholastic theologians about how to succeed at this task of giving a coherent account of the Trinity or some advance in our understanding of what we believe. I want to point rather to their agreement about the main requirements of the task itself. At the most basic level of thought about the matter, only the concepts of procession and relation, rightly deployed, permit minimal distinction or maximal unity, the distinction and unity which must obtain among the three persons who are the one God. On just this score, a good deal of thinking about the Trinity over the last hundred years or so jeopardizes the coherence of Trinitarian theology. In particular, the compliance of Trinitarian theology with the laws of thought about identity and difference. It does so, as we will see momentarily, by trying to find kenosis not only in the incarnation of the Father's eternal Son, but in the very way the Son comes forth eternally from the Father, and to find kenosis in the relations between them that constitute their personal identity and distinction. Before we get to that, however, some brief reflections on Philippians 2. When we consider the scripturally attested kenosis of the Son of God in light of what has been said so far, the first thing to observe is that we cannot transgress in thinking about this kenosis, the logic of identity we have sought to follow in thinking about the divine persons and the one God. We cannot, that is, attribute anything to the eternal Son in virtue of his kenosis that fails to square with both his personal distinction from the Father and the Holy Spirit and his numerical identity of essence with them, whatever account we may give of this distinction and identity, uh, of which, as I suggested, there are several. Whether we're likely to succeed in this, succeed in giving an account of kenosis that does not traduce basic laws of thought that we are attempting to adhere to, whether we are likely to succeed depends on what we take the son's kenosis to consist in. As depicted in Philippians 2, the kenosis of the son has several aspects of which it's useful to distinguish five here. Christ Jesus, Paul teaches, was first in the form of God, which has to mean, as subsequent Trinitarian doctrine insists, that he possesses the one divine essence or nature. 
It may also be taken, as in St. Thomas, personally, as Father Emery has pointed out, being the form of God is a way of designating the person of the Son. He was, moreover, this is the second point, equal to God, in the form of God and equal to God. This implies several things. First of all, that there is personal distinction in God. One who is equal to God must be distinct from the God to whom he is equal. Otherwise, there will be no equality. Equality is a relation among distinct things. Rather, there will simply be straightforward identity. Since he is equal in the form of God, however, the distinction must be within God and not between God and something else. This also follows from the impossibility of anything not God being equal to God. His equality with God, the equality of Christ Jesus with God, which in this context clearly means the person of the Father, must furthermore be the maximum possible equality. An equality such as can come only from having one and the same infinite divine essence. This quality must be traced back to the common possession of that one essence and seen as a necessary consequence of it. If two who have one and the same essence are really distinct, as Paul here teaches and the church's faith holds, they must be equal to one another in every respect. This one equal to God, this one who is clearly, of course, the eternal son, emptied himself. This is the kenosis we are trying to understand. Whatever else we might want to say about the kenosis or self-emptying of the son, it must be understood to take place without prejudice to or compromise of the first two fundamental convictions enunciated in the hymn. The numerical unity with God in former essence of the one who empties himself remains fully in force as does his supreme or maximal equality with God. Otherwise, the one who emptied himself is no longer the same as the one who was in the form of God and equal to God, yet did not count equality with God something to be grasped. The kenosis or emptying itself includes, this is a third basic feature of the passage, accepting the form of a servant and being found in human form or shape, habitus, as the Vulgate puts it. The first step, we might say, in the kenosis of the eternal son is his becoming flesh, his incarnation. He accepts our flesh in the form of a servant, or in the Greek, the form of a slave. This suggests, as medieval and later Christology often put it, that the Son not only assumes our flesh, but defects to which our flesh is liable on account of sin, especially subjection to suffering and death. This is not, of course, to say that he accepts flesh tainted by sin. He is like us in all things save sin itself. Thus the apostle's phrase, he came to be in the likeness of men. His kenosis includes, moreover, not only his becoming, coming to be, I should say, his being in our flesh, but what he does and suffers in our flesh. His kenosis includes not only his essay incarnate, but his operari incarnate, what he does and suffers for us in the flesh he accepted. 
Paul characterizes this feature of the son's kenosis as his voluntary humiliation, which consists in his obedience unto death on the cross. I'll return to the obedience of the incarnate son momentarily. Upon his obedience and death, there follows as the result of these and inseparable from his kenosis as a whole, fifth and last, his exaltation. Because of this, God exalted him to the fullness of his own glory, into the glory of God the Father. On account of which, on account of this exaltation, every knee will bend before him and every tongue confess him. In what then does the kenosis of the Son of God properly consist? What is its essence? On this score, the text of Philippians 2 can, I think, be read in two different ways. For the first reading, the self-emptying of the person of the Son is in its essence his very acceptance of our flesh, of the form of a servant. Self-emptying is the assumption of our flesh. In its essence, therefore, the kenosis of the Son, if Philippians 2 is read in this way, consists in the incarnation itself, the assumption of a human nature into personal or hypostatic union with the Son. This is St. Thomas's interpretation, several times repeated, and it is certainly the more common reading in the tradition. Quoting St. Thomas, the apostle in Philippians calls this union, the hypostatic union, the kenosis of the Son of God, end quote. The subsequent self-humiliation, obedience, and death of the incarnate Son extend and deepen this kenosis, but they are not themselves constitutive of it. On this reading, the exaltation and glorification of the incarnate Son reward and reverse. They bring to an end his humiliation, obedience, and death, but of course they do not bring to an end his union with our flesh. Since it's precisely this union which constitutes his kenosis on this reading, the Son exists eternally in a kenotic state. Alternatively, one could read the text so that it locates the kenosis not in the assumption of human nature itself, but in the defects, suffering, and death the eternal Son willingly takes on for our salvation given the conditions of sin. On this reading, the resurrection and exaltation of Christ by reversing his humiliation and obedience, obedience and death bring to an end his state or condition of kenosis itself, though obviously not his incarnation. On this reading, the kenotic state is temporal, not eternal. It does not accompany him to the Father's right hand in glory. Understood in this way, the kenosis of the Son does not consist in his incarnation as such, but in his assumption of the consequences of sin in our flesh and in his obedience unto death. It consists in humiliation and obedience, but it necessarily presupposes incarnation, taking the form of a servant. The precise interpretive question here is whether the this of Philippians 2.9, because of this, God exalted him, has as its primary antecedent, he emptied himself in 2.7, or he humbled himself in 2.8. If the self-emptying of the Son is what his exaltation reverses, then the second reading is the better one. If the humiliation is what it reverses, then the first reading is the better one. Either way, either way, and this is the decisive point for our present purposes, we can attribute canonic properties, humiliation, obedience, death, to the person of the Son only on account of his incarnation. 
humiliation, obedience, death, and any other property that involves inequality with the Father, and in his own way, inequality with the Holy Spirit, belongs to the eternal Son only on account of the human nature that he has freely assumed. Secundum quote homo, as Thomas and many others put it. This is true whether we think of the becoming flesh of the only begotten as itself the primary kenosis, or, to the, or see the humiliation and death that follows as constitutive of his kenosis. Either way, without incarnation, there would simply be no kenosis. And if Philippians 2 gives us no basis for attributing kenosis to the Son of God except in virtue of the humanity he has assumed into personal union with himself, still less does it give us any basis for attributing kenotic properties to the Father or the Holy Spirit in whom no such assumption of created nature takes place. This is not to say that the human and canonic properties the Son freely accepts in time belong to him any less truly or really than the properties he necessarily has in eternity as a person of the divine nature. It is to say, rather, that divine kenosis presupposes personal distinction in God, but kenosis plays no part at all in making the persons distinct. However we understand the constitution and distinction of the divine persons and their unity as the one God, properties like humiliation, obedience, and death cannot enter into it. According to Philippians 2, any such properties that truly belong to the Son, as they do, belong to him freely and contingently. As a result, the persons of the Trinity must completely have their unity and distinction. Whatever we take it to be that constitutes them as distinct persons of the one God must completely obtain in order for the attribution of any canonic property even to be conceivable. Properly speaking, the mystery of the kenosis of the eternal Son does not belong to Trinitarian theology at all. This great mystery before which we bow at every mass when we utter the words that express it at homo factus est, this great mystery has its theological home and reflection on the incarnation of the Son, not on his eternal generation from the Father. For a broad and forceful current of modern theology over the last century or more, this isn't good enough. The reading and theological interpretation of Philippians 2 I've just given isn't good enough. It is not enough that the Son of God empties himself and accepts our flesh and death in time. The kenosis of the Son, as we confess it in the Creed, his incarnation and cross, loses its depth and meaning, its power to save, unless it is rooted in a kenosis that has already taken place in God according to this deep current. Expressing this intuition, the English Protestant theologian P.T. Forsyth said over a century ago, there was a Calvary above. The cross which Jesus bore for us in time can only be truly effective for our salvation if it was already present and real somehow at the heart of God from all eternity. The obedient, suffering, dereliction, and dissensus of Jesus cannot belong to God on this reading simply because he has decided to become incarnate in the person of the Son. Rather, they must belong to God in one way or another as God and not simply as man, as a human being. They must belong to God in Aquinas' terms, secundum quod Deus, insofar as he is God, 
and not only secundum quod homo, in virtue of his humanity. They must be constitutive of his being as God, and not only of his contingent temporal action. Kenosis must enter on this view into the primal processions and relations among the divine persons in order for the incarnation and the cross to be really God's saving work in the world. Only so can we take in sufficient earnest God's radical saving identification in Christ with his humiliated and suffering, his derelict and damned creatures, God's likeness to us in all things, save sin. Why one might think that the freely willed incarnation and cross of the Son are not enough so that one is motivated to find a kenosis and a Calvary above is a complex question, one not easily answered. Surely the motives for this are not simply conceptual or theological. Catholic, Protestant, and sometimes Orthodox Christians all sense a matter of deep religious significance at stake here which is no doubt an important reason why such attributions of kenosis to the very being of the divine persons find such resonance and not only among theologians. For the moment, however, I am concerned not with the motives for the claim that there is a kenosis above, but with its coherence. The question more precisely is whether such an idea can be part of a coherent Trinitarian theology, one that complies with the laws of thought concerning identity and difference when thinking about the Trinity. Here, I think, difficulties arise of the most serious kind. To get a sense of this, we can look at an especially influential text in this genre, Karl Barth's argument for an eternal obedience of the Son of God in Church Dogmatics 4.1, paragraph 59, which has already come up in our conversation. The obedience and subordination visible in the path Jesus follows from Bethlehem to Golgotha are in reality, Bart argues, eternal divine attributes, constitutive of the very being of the Father and the Son. These canonic attributes, though Bart does not here call them that, cannot be true of the eternal Son only in virtue of his becoming flesh belonging to him on account of his freely assumed human nature and not also on account of the divine nature he possesses as the Father's only begotten. Just here, the two natures doctrine of the tradition, it seems, is not good enough. Unless the subordination and obedience plainly visible, all are agreed, plainly visible on the way from Bethlehem to Golgotha goes all the way down in God, we cannot suppose that God is in earnest about our salvation, about truly being for us. Without this, this subordination and obedience in his own being, God cannot exist in saving solidarity with the lost, not in a genuine and adequate way. What happens in Bethlehem and Gethsemane and on the cross cannot go all the way down in God, Bart moreover supposes, if it is merely what the triune God does. It has to be who God is in the very persons of the Father and the Son. Otherwise, what happens in Jesus' human history would fail, as Bart puts it, to bring us into touch with God himself. Bart is aware that he might seem to be flirting with Arianism here in speaking of subordination in God. This he stoutly denies. The Arians thought that the son, of, the son was by nature unequal to the Father, which is, of course, wrong, Bart observes. Yet why should there not be an eternal and supratemporal subordination and obedience of the Son to the Father in the unity and equality of the divine nature, he asks. 
After all, Bart observes, perhaps not entirely helpfully, the wife is subordinate to the husband without prejudice to her equality of nature with him. To see subordination and obedience as inherent to the way the son possesses the divine nature itself does not make him less fully God, the son that is, but bestows the ultimate ontological dignity on subordination. It's a way of being divine, of being the one God. I'm going to skip a couple of paragraphs for the sake of time and go to explain why I think this is a very telling and important passage, one that's deeply influential in recent theology, not least on Hans Urs and Balthasar. Um, but I'll go then directly to my concern about this. Why is this not enough? Why not, though? Why not see subordination and obedience as attributes belonging to God by nature in the person of the Son, and not simply as human attributes he accepts when he comes in the likeness of sinful flesh? Why not, in other words, see his kenosis to consist in the very way he receives the divine nature? And not only in his free temporal acceptance of our nature under the conditions of sin. Of the several reasons why not, the one that most pertains to Trinitarian theology is that the logic of identity rules it out. For the three divine persons to be one God, it is not enough that they be the same in kind as husband and wife, equally human beings, are the same in kind. If they are each to be God, they must be entirely one and the same, entirely one and the same, granted the acts of origination minimally necessary to distinguish them, and the opposed relations necessarily attendant on those acts. The divine nature must be numerically identical in each, not just generically or qualitatively identical. Otherwise, father, son, and spirit would no more be one God than wife and husband are one human being. This requires that father, son, and Holy Spirit have in a numerically identical way whatever attributes belong to the divine nature, attributes, powers, and so forth. The nature of the father communicates to the son by generation. They cannot simply have the same kind of attribute. Commanding and obeying, therefore, cannot belong to the Father and the Son in the numerical unity of the divine nature. One and the same will cannot both command and obey a person who possesses it. Commanding and obeying require numerically different wills, as in creatures. Unless we want to say that command and obedience, each identical with the one divine nature and the one God, are thereby identical with each other. But that's not the point Bart wants to make. The Aryan worry that Bart recognizes can be put, in fact, more precisely than he puts it. As the Aryans at least implicitly recognize, the son cannot be subordinate to the father by nature and still have numerically the same nature as the father. Subordination to a superior can belong to one nature with reference to another as subordination to God belongs to human nature. But subordination to a superior cannot both belong in the person of the son and not belong in the person of the Father to one and the same nature. The eternal Son cannot, it seems, be subordinate to the Father in his possession of the divine nature and still be the same God the Father is. If we are to attribute subordination to him, it must be on account of a numerically distinct nature he comes to possess, and this is just the point of the traditional two natures doctrine on this score. St. Thomas considers this issue in relation to the perfections of the divine power 
and the manner in which one and the same power is possessed by each of the three persons of the Trinity. An objector notes that the power of one who commands is greater than the power of one who obeys. The Son obviously obeys the Father, all are agreed, so the objection goes. Therefore, the power of the Father must be greater than that of the Son. So St. Thomas considered paragraph 59 before Barth had written it. Thomas replies, as we would expect, that the best way of taking Jesus' profession of obedience to the command of the Father is with respect to his human nature, as I've just been suggesting. If, however, we do want to apply it to the divine nature that he has entirely in common with the Father, if we want to take it that way, then the only way that that will work, Aquinas argues, is if the Father's command and the Son's obedience simply reduce to the Father's generation of the Son as a distinct person having the one divine nature. Quoting St. Thomas, the command of the Father can be referred, can be referred to the fact that from eternity the Father gives to the Son by generating him the knowledge and will of what is to be done, one and the same knowledge and will the Father himself has. To this it might be objected on St. Thomas's own grounds that we should simply take commanding and obeying as opposed relations in God, constitutive or at least true of the divine person, just as Thomas himself takes paternity and filiation or generating and being generated. Thomas grants, moreover, that father and son possess the divine nature in irreducibly distinct ways or modes, the father by giving it, the son by receiving it, for example. Unlike paternity and filiation, however, commanding and obeying rule out the equality, indeed the maximal equality, that must obtain between the divine persons. And since this equality is a necessary condition for the persons having one and the same divine nature, ruling out maximal equality rules out the three persons being one and the same God. Commanding and obeying above and below, as Barth has it, remove the equality of what is received, the nature that obeys, with what is given, the nature that commands, and therefore removes a fortiori, its numerical identity, in the two persons. A son well generated, the son, although generated, or indeed because he is generated, must be as potent as commanding and so forth as the father who generates. Personal distinction in numerical unity of nature is what's basic in thinking about the Trinity. And we have to understand any differences in the way the three persons possess the divine nature in terms of what is needed to distinguish them, origination and relation, and not the other way around. It seems unlikely then that we can locate the son's obedience and subordination to the father inside the Trinity in the processions and relations that distinguish the persons. Carried through consistently, this makes it impossible to think of the three persons as one God, really identical with the one divine essence. Even the most committed advocate of intertrinitarian kenosis cannot, of course, live with this result. No matter how flamboyantly canonic a theologian is, he will not admit to being a tritheist. We will, therefore, have to forego any kenosis belonging to the eternal Son by nature. We will have to forego a Calvary above and be content with the freely willed temporal kenosis of Philippians 2 and of the tradition built upon it. But that, surely, is more than good enough. 
Thank you for your patience. Yes, I mean this is this is the great effort of uh, of centuries of, of Trinitarian theology, uh, as it of course it develops both east and west, but particularly in its western forms um, throughout the Middle Ages. Um, and there are several strategies for trying to do this, um, which I again can't try to explain, but I can at least tell you what they are. Okay, and one is that which. Uh, uh, Gilles Emery uh, pointed out with respect to St. Thomas, which is to see relational opposition, okay, paternity filiation, as the root of all of the personal distinction between father and son, the absolute root of the personal distinction between father and son, and to see in the distinctive character of the notion of relation a way of upholding the law of identity when you think about the Trinity. And he discusses this quite explicitly. You can look in question 28, article three, and question 39, article one. A lot of his contemporaries, and this is one reason why I think it's important to read St. Thomas on the Trinity in his historical context and not simply in relation to contemporary theology. A lot of his contemporaries disagreed with him about this. They did not think a relation account of personal distinction uh, was in fact compatible with the basic questions about identity and difference that I began with. And so they argued that mode of origination, and here often by intellect and will was important, but um, the, the psychological analogy is a sort of third factor in this whole discussion that, that complicates it. It's not simply identical with medieval Trinitarian theologies that they're all psychological. In fact, some of them flatly rejected the psychological. But one, an alternative strategy to the relation account is to say um, that it's distinct modes of origination um, according to intellect and will, according uh, to generation, according to procession, if you like, that are the fundamental basis for distinction. And then there were some medieval theologians, particularly in the 14th century, who argued, they didn't just assert it, they argued very sort of vigorously that neither of these accounts work and that in fact we understand about as much as we're going to understand about the Trinity just by saying the creed, okay? So you have a kind of interesting, very rigorous analytical undertaking which ends up saying we can't really make much advance at all in our comprehension of this. So there are different ways of approaching it. Bruce, thank you very much for your elegance. Thank you. Um, I have a question with regard to the way you set up Is that really the case with the opportunity? Because it seems to me that the minimal difference which you allow, which is the only difference on the possessions and on the origination, is the maximum difference. Because the one who begets will never be the one who's begotten. That is axiomatic. And if one sees it in this way, then we have maximal difference that constitutes maximal unity. So, should it be set up in a different way, or am I just wrong? <laughs> Numerical difference, as I put it, or 
in a more elaborate way you put it, that the one who begets will never be the one who is begotten, um, isn't the maximal difference. The difference between God and something God creates, for example, um, is a much greater difference than the difference between the Father and the Son. Um, so, absolutely, um, there is, and this is the sort of root conviction, there, is, there are persons in God. Okay? Um, this is what the faith of the Trinity is, the church teaches it, uh, illumined by the Holy Spirit, we come to perceive. But we have to perceive it in a way that in saying the Son is God, just as the one who begets him is God, um, that we don't make him into a second, um, a God alongside the one who begets him. Um, and that's what I'm getting at when I insist that, um, that this has to be, with, with you know, a long strain of traditional thought on this point, that this has to be a minimal difference, a difference compatible with the two distinct persons, one of whom will never be the other, being one and the same God. Thank you very much for this very thought-provoking lecture. My question is to do with this axiom that God wishes to defend. Whatever we say of God's action, the divine covenant, must be said somehow also in the divine life. What happens to this concern of God in your proposal, um, which aims to say that God does what God is? There seems to be a gap that you're really producing. Yes, there's ab yeah, absolutely there's a gap. I just don't think it's problematic. That is to say, I think it's really important. I think it's a fundamental problem with Bart that um, uh, God doesn't have to do this. God becomes incarnate out of sheer generosity towards us. And God, as Bart sometimes says, but then sometimes denies, this is part of his charm, but also his frustration, um, God would be just the same if he had never created a world and if he had never become incarnate in this world. Um, so I think it's not only a sort of, it's not just a little gap I want to introduce here. <laughs> I want to insist on an absolutely fundamental gap um, that who God is is not the same as what God does. Uh, and um, if you, if you think that, if you think as Bart does, then, then it seems to me that you're going to end up with the kind of difficulties that worry me. Oh, please let me thank him.